in anticipation of doing this conversation i've been reading up a lot a lot of your books a lot about you i've been listening to you on various talks and podcasts and i've come to understand before your official designation gets mentioned in your introduction what needs to be mentioned is that you are how would you say a connoisseur of history geography almost like there is a interest in maritime specific history and geography um i know you worked in deutsche bank before so you yes. have a whole different angle of finance and economics built into it and at this point my assumption is i may be wrong correct me if i am you work as a member of the economic advisory committee to the prime minister of india yes is that a fair introduction sir yes Did i have it up yeah right? i'm in the prime minister's uh, economic advisory council right how sir how does um, how different is this life from let's say the life of history geography and and finance before well it's difficult for me to separate it from the history part because um that's not my primary occupation right so i have kept doing it uh, in my life in financial markets and now as well so it has always been kind of at the background but been around for a long time right uh, so there's never been any clean break from it but there has been a clean break for my life in finance and uh, so yes i spent 22 years uh, in financial markets between nine, uh, in uh, between 1995 and uh, 2015 uh, actually 2017 if you you can stretch it to um so in that time uh, i much of it spent in singapore by the way um i was basically a um, financial markets economist uh, global strategist for deutsche bank and my job really was to look at global risks um look at uh, big trends globally uh, look at uh, um, you know what's happening in exchange rates or um interest rates or and stuff like that right uh, political risk and things like that so that was my life it was obviously uh uh, uh risk analysis and uh, opportunities uh, kind of life right so in some ways it's not completely different from what i do uh, so there is a link but yes it was for a private sector um i was traveling a lot uh, the people i talked to mostly were about uh, were um uh, in, you know large investors corporations and bankers so on. and so bankers on, right. and so on but there my job was not to try and fix whatever was the system my my job was to simply understand what it was and make a best guess about the how things were panning out right so i had no no role to play in fixing the the issues i was a bystander and my and my uh, job was to try and guess how things will pan out as best as i could here the job goes one step further so since i joined the government in 2017 as principal economic advisor first where i spent 5 years and now in uh, uh, prime minister modi's economic council my job is really to not only understand that this is an issue and try and guess it but also attempt to do something about it right so this is a second step that i did not have to take in my previous job right which i now have to take and do you enjoy it more in some ways it's more satisfying um financially of course it doesn't pay quite as well uh, right you know, of course government salaries are nowhere near uh, private investment, sectors uh, investment banking salaries in particular uh, even in the private sector world but yes there is a certain satisfaction from being able to influence um uh, you know an economy that contains 1.4 billion people uh, now emerging as you know soon to be the world's third largest economy right. and specifically at a major turning point in our history so have to have been sort of in the cockpit uh, when a major turning point of indian history is happening is a privilege there's no doubt about that 
I'll tell you, sir. Um, right before I was leaving America, which was like a few months ago, I was catching up with all the friends I'd made over a six-year stay there, right? And these friends were South American, North American, European, African, so on and so forth. There were Tur- Turkish guys. There were Argentinian folk. Folks from, let's say, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, and even elsewhere, even Europe, right? And every time I'd had a conversation, it was so baffling to me that when they would report about their home countries, none of them were as euphoric as I was just default. Like, my default state about India was, yes, we are doing incredibly well. The Turkish were complaining about a slowdown like never before. The Argentinians were doing the same. The last conversation I had with somebody who's an Israeli Jew was like, look, bro, the the three global powers of the world right now are America, China, and India. And this is a sort of discourse point I'd never come across while I was growing up. Initially, I thought maybe we are being a little delusional about it. Maybe that's not the case. But then you see the economy hit a four trillion mark. Like you said, we are on course to beat Germany and, and Japan soon in a very short window of time to sort of surpass their economic, their, their GDPs. How does one go about understanding this, sir? Because ek to numeric figure hai na, $4 trillion. What about things like income distribution? Are there any fragilities built into the economics? Um, how, do, how does a common person, how does a layman understand where we are economically? So let me first say that there is no doubt that our uh, place in the world is changing very, very rapidly. So yes, we are already in US dollar terms, uh, the world's fifth largest economy. But in purchasing power terms, if you adjust for purchasing power, we are already the world's third largest economy. Hmm. And we are growing also the world's fastest. So in about 18 months or so, we will go past Germany. In maybe three years' time, we will be uh, going past Japan as well to, in sheer bulk terms, the world's third largest economy. Right. Okay. So we will be about somewhere in the $5 trillion mark. Now, that doesn't mean that poverty has disappeared from India. No. We, we will be the world's third largest economy, but the largest population. So once you divide it by the population, we are still a poor country. Our per capita income will still be low, but not as low as it used to be, first of all. Right. Okay. So it's rising, number right. one. Number two, the, there are some advantages to sheer scale. Okay. First of all, it means that the way we interact with the rest of the world changes because we can now push our way around in ways that we simply could not have done. In the past. Right. Right. We can we can get involved in writing the world's rules. Uh, earlier, we were just takers of somebody else's rules. The way we negotiate trade deals, for example, changes as a result of this. But also, sheer economic strength allows for economies of scale in terms of the industries we create. It means the kinds of tax revenue we generate. Even if we are redistributing to the poor or building infrastructure, we can imagine it in scales we just could not have done till very, very recently in the past. So all of this dynamics begins to change and begins to flip over. So take, for example, China. Okay. As recently as the early 1990s, their per capita income and their economy was, a, was basically in the same ballpark as ours. Then they went through this big growth spurt and suddenly many things began to flip in their favor. It's a different matter that they are currently having some economic problems, but there's no doubt that they are in a totally different place from where they were in 1990. Agreed. Right? So our game is to do the exact same thing over the next 20, 25 years. Right. Now, we are beginning to do it. Let's not get euphoric. This is the beginning of the game. But we are finally beginning to generate the kinds of dynamics we 
can say could be a sustainable level shift in our economic performance and then feeding through to other things in terms of economic power, welfare of the people, uh, quality of life, all the other things that you want to have as um, you know, a global power that right. you want to have. But finally, we are reaching the tipping point where these things will become affordable for an increasing uh, number, of people. number of people and it will expand over time. Right. And the game, by the way, is of compounding. Right. So if you anybody who in in the audience who who knows about compound interest rates, and right. if you learned that in arithmetic class in in class seven or eight or wherever when we learn it, you will learn that initially it yes it, you know that things are moving, but it's only after a while that that compounding effect really begins to gallop. Right. So we are reaching a point why maybe the end of this decade, you know, it will really begin to gallop. That same growth rate will be generating enormous amounts of. Uh, actual dollars right sir i don't know why you say it's not um we, we are not ready enough to be euphoric because this makes me so euphoric if this is the beginning where are we really going right no like, no no that's the point that's uh-huh. precisely why i'm trying to calm people down <laughs> look we've got to sustain this for 25 years right so sir one fair way to look at this would be that abhi the growth curve the exponential sort of increase in this compound yes. interest way is only beginning to happen yes right and i want to ask you sir because when we talk about this, there is necessarily a mention of pehle aisa nahi tha, and now we are seeing more and more of this. Now, I can think of one big change in the Indian economic scene that happens in 1991, yes. which is we go from being a more closed off, more like non-privatized economy to a more liberal, globalized, the LPG, whatever. Is that the reason? Is that the compounding we are now realizing in 2023-24? Or... Is there a different change that I haven't noticed necessarily that has occurred over the last 10, 15, 20 years? Both. Both. So one big shift that happens in 1991 is undoubted. Right. I mean, before that, we were a closed license permit raj, socialist economy. We just didn't aspire for anything bigger. And then 1991 happens. By the way, it's important to remember that it is forced on us. I mean, 1991, I was around in college at that time. Right. It's not like the... Uh, Indian economists of that time were all visionaries visionaries and they were demanding. All that happened is our economy collapsed. Our closest ally, the Soviet Union collapsed. Collapsed. We had no choice but to reform. So we reformed. So, but it turned out to be a good thing. As a result of which finally some new dynamic began to emerge. All this IT sector, etc. that we're talking about began to emerge and so on and so forth. And then we began to see a more liberal market-oriented, more efficient economy, and we began to generate this growth dynamic. However, this has been stops and starts. So there have been some reforms in the beginning, the original Manmohan Singh, uh, Narasimha Rao reforms. Then once the economy got going, we because we hadn't kind of, it wasn't something that we were really bought into. We did some because we had to, we got some growth, and then we all stopped again. Right. Then, after a little while, it again began to peter out. There was the Asian crisis in 1997-98, that period. Then, during the Vajpayee era, again, there is a little bit of reform. There is some effort to clean up the economy, get some infrastructure. So, the first attempt at creating modern infrastructure happens in the Vajpayee era. 2001-2. That total was 2000-2001-2002. Now, that generates some growth dynamic. Again, that generates a period of growth. But then even that begins to peter out by about 2006, seven, And then, of course, there's a world financial crisis. At this juncture, we don't do new reforms. What we do is we try to use the banking sector to expand credit and keep the growth going. 
So during this period, starting from 2007, 8, 9, 10, there is massive expansion in bank credit. Without reforms being done along with it. So what is happening is just pumping up the system. Right. So many of these things, these loans that were given out by certainly from 2013, 14, 15, they all go sour. There's no securities underneath. Yeah, so so all this infrastructure or even uh, corporate uh, capacities we create, they begin to go bad. So the banks begin to break down. So now what happens is that no reforms have been done. So you, the point I'm making is we do reforms, we get a phase of growth and then it kind of breaks down after a while and after a while we are forced to do another round of reforms. So this is what then again starts after 2014. So mm. the, another round of reforms happens. Mm. Now this round of reforms happens under this prime minister and there are a whole bunch of them. So one is, one big reform is anchoring our macroeconomics and inflation. So remember, we used to always be a high inflation country. Right. So 8 to 12% inflation. We, are, we were never an Argentina type in high inflation country, but we were a high inflation country in the 8 to 12% inflation. We create a monetary policy committee, create inflation targeting, we bring it down to the 2 to 6% range. Hmm. So that is one big reform. Massive. Then we create a GST system. Right. Before GST, every state has its own tax system. Right. Causes all kinds of con- confusion. So now what happens, you create a GST system for the whole country. So I always say this is a free trade agreement India signed with itself. Right. Right. So right. now goods can go across without hindrance. Right. Then you have something called insolvency and bankruptcy code. Why is this important? Because if you want creative destruction, you want innovation, some of it will go wrong. You want a system by which all the all the innovations that went wrong, all the risk-taking that went wrong, is continuously cleared up in the banking system so that you can clean it up and do another round of risk-taking. Right. So the insolvency and bankruptcy code happened. Now, all of these reforms began to happen. Then finally, major, you know, next layer of large infrastructure began to get built. Hmm. So all of this started on in the last decade or so. Then, of course, we got hit by COVID. That, right. of course, two years of chaos, as you all know. But even there, I would say we did a good job in terms of managing the economic uh, situation, uh, rolling out our own vaccination program and all that. That was, I mean, although those two years in some ways was loss, but nevertheless, one good thing happened as a result is that our own confidence in ourselves as a country country, did get boosted. And so when we came out of this um, period, we came out with an economy that had already gone through some reforms before, managed the COVID period much better than anyone else without blowing up our monetary and fiscal resources. And we were still in uh, 2022, still standing, whereas most other economies were really wobbling. And then since 22 and now in the end of 23, we are clearly, uh, our economy has recovered very dramatically. And as you know, it is by some margin the fastest growing economy of any size in the world. Um, and all these other, all this compounding process we were talking about earlier right. is beginning to happen. Right. There was something you'd mentioned right before we'd started recording about there's, there being an active effort from the state to withdraw, right? And that being sort of one of the ways in which economic reforms have occurred over the last 10 years. Ki ab ko yaar, like, I don't want to run public sector. I want to sell Air India off. I want to focus on a limited. And this is very resonant of the... 
I mean, not entirely, but somewhat resonant of the libertarian. Even Cotillia mentions this limited state sort of argument for how states should interact with people. That the state should focus on judiciary, it should focus on contracts and a few other things. And then the innovation, the business building, that kind of stuff should be left to private individuals and corporations. Tell me a little more about that, sir. How is that sort of... Because it's so counterintuitive, now, Like for a traditional Indian way of thought, where... Unle- Government hmm. job degi. My Bab Sarkar. My Bab Sarkar, right? Like, ki ko the government is hmm. supposed to government and not even government, right? Like, that's sort of the way we've thought about it. How is receding and withdrawing from the public space being helpful in reconstructing our economic zones or like thinking about economics? So, yes. So, you know, I've said this before as well. I am a cotillion. I believe in a strong but limited state. So, it's important. I'm not a libertarian. Right. I do believe in in a strong state, but I don't want an all-pervasive state. And I certainly don't want a Nehruvian, weak, all-pervasive state. So what happened after 1991 is that the government slowly withdrew from from those things it should not be doing. Right, so that is basically much of the progress you have seen thus far is by the government withdrawing from things it should not do. Like, for instance, for example, running airlines is one good example, or even getting into business like license permit Raj, and all these kind of things. Right. That doesn't mean that the government doesn't have a role. I still believe the government has a role. But what should the government do? So the real game now is to gear in. One is the withdrawal of government from things it shouldn't do. But now the game is about getting the government to do the things it should do. Hmm. So what are those things? One is obviously uh, infrastructure. And that is something we are really now doing in a massive scale. I mean... If you happen to live in cities like Mumbai, for example, you can see the sheer scale of uh, construction construction that's happening. In fact, not many people realize the largest concentration of cranes in the world right now are Mumbai. What are they building? Roads? Uh, Well, they're building all kinds of things. Of course, they're building the coastal road, as you know. Uh, I think it's a 22-kilometer length thing, and a lot of it is done already, so it's not some theory thing. You can go to a tall building and you can see it. Right. But, you know, even the railway lines, you know, for since the 19th century, Mumbai has basically functioned on two train lines. Hmm. Now what we are doing is it has created a third one and a completely modern one. Unlike the 19th century construction, this is going to be an under, underground railway network with one of the main the arterial line going from Cuff Parade all the way to Seeps. And then there are these cross lines as well. Now this is basically done. Now all the bells and whistles are being put together. I think by this time next year, you may be able to, be able to get to at least large parts of it may be actually functional. And that will change this city. I mean, on day one, this arterial line, I think it's line number three, will be the world's most heavily used metro line. Is is that not true for Bombay already? The world's most heavily used railway lines? Locally? Yeah, so, but this will be a completely modern thing. It's, this is not, you know, this will be at the cutting edge of cutting edge. Right. And the thing that is that most of the hard work is done. Hmm. So it's not that we're going to do it, we are going to build it. It's all done. They are now actually fixing the the uh, glass and uh, painting the walls. The that polishing. Is, they are doing the polishing. Very soon they will be actually doing the train lines running to and things like that. So we are getting to the stage where it will get done. Now, similarly, a link to the mainland, new link to the mainland. Already built, it should be opened in a few weeks. Hmm. New airport, Navi Mumbai airport is getting constructed. And this is just a bunch of things. I mean, there is a, this is just the public sector investment. There's the private sector is also investing in 
brand new tall buildings. You see, there are really cool looking buildings coming up. There's lots of stuff Very going on. Very exciting stuff. Exciting stuff. I mean, BKC already is cool. There's more cool stuff coming. Right. Um, you know, and of course, the old mill land area that is getting repurposed in interesting ways. There are now nice restaurants and bars and... And, and and nightlife that has come up popped up in the in, in the right. in the middle of the midlands which in is lower parel yes and so so you know you're getting a serious city coming up right you know it's it used to be if you went to our financial capital it felt like acha theek hai nice enough but really it's mostly about the poverty of dharavi that's the mental image and trains with people hanging out um still True. that is still there to some extent right but there is this other mumbai that is emerging right but that's mumbai sir right and most of most of india does not interact with mumbai in any reasonable way right there is a small subset i would inter- ha huh. yeah but there is other cities i have i gave that mumbai as an example right but you know things are happening in hyderabad you go and look at the modern that's cyber true. city type stuff in hyderabad there's cool stuff happening in bangalore in chennai even in uh, second third tier cities i mean there are cool stuff happening in pune right and there is uh, ahmedabad uh, and uh, of course delhi ncr is booming we actually have a very you know high speed link through to meerat of all places <laughs> yeah. i don't know you come from, you you are from faridabad right. and faridabad is the best through. city in the world sir let me just put that uh, on well, the I, I you know we'll have that debate <laughs> But the point of the matter is, you know, I can see that Faridabad of the future may be completely different because you know the dynamics will simply blow it on to another level. Sir, I live for that day. I live for that day. I return to Faridabad, no. and it's like a cosmic. Like... No, no, no. So I know Faridabad <laughs> as it stands. I agree. But you know, look at significant parts of Gurgaon. Yes. Some parts of Gurgaon now look world class. Not all of it. Right. There are lots of problems all over. Hmm. But there is at least a fairly large belt that hmm. is actually world class. You, I I spot on, sir. In fact, sir, like infrastructure as a whole, I think is a very high leverage switch hmm. for economic policy because, hmm. like, before we begin to speak about education, right, hmm. which I think has become a bogey word that we just throw in whenever we don't necessarily understand the root of the problem. Infrastructure is more the thing that solves through trickle down economics, through other means, through providing employment, through finding other people who can build businesses around these. Like I think that is the real meat of maybe nation building in a certain way. How has Middle India, which is say not metropolitan India, experienced because I know the road networks has gotten extensively large, Absolutely. right? Like has is it true for ports and airports? Is that true for like trade routes? Absolutely. Or, Hmm. Look at the number of airports there all over the country. I mean I keep ma- pointing out some of the coolest airports are actually the second tier or third tier airports. Go to Agartala. Agartala Achha. has got a fancy airport. Huh. Okay. Uh Gangtok has a cool airport. Right. Okay. Although it's uh, it has a problem in that it's uh, in a in a difficult place to land because of the mountainous nature and 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 the winds and all that. But nevertheless it does have a, 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 an airport. Uh, and there are new airports coming up in you know places you wouldn't imagine uh, smaller third fourth tier cities and that is really changing the dynamics of india i mean you know you fly in directly to places like ayodhya or something like that yeah. and investments are also happening things are cool things are happening in these places right. i mean varanasi was you know um, has become a cool place even for uh, gen uh, gen z to visit Sir, that is a cultural renaissance happening on the level of narrative, which I want to get to in just a second yeah. because I want to stick to what we were speaking about in terms of, say, limited state and where should the state focus itself if mm. not in the areas where it's withdrawing from. 
one of the ways in which I found, sir, the state has, let's say, almost this unattended overreach. Like, it's mm-hmm. not like it wants to overreach in this way. It's unattended. For a brief while, sir, I had the opportunity to proxy as a trainee in the civil services camp of the world. Okay. Um, I knew somebody who was running a training center for them and they would just send me to different places to go and survey and talk to people. So I remember being in the Tehsil in uh, Panchkula. Right? Panchkula or Zirakpur, one of these. And I spoke to this gentleman who was probably fairly mid-tier, if not the top or the bottom uh, in the feeding chain. And I tried to understand, ki, why do you think is this such a complicated mess? The office is outside you, full of people whose problems don't seem resolved. They look like they're suffering for years trying to get whatever they're trying to get past. Yeah, there were a few things that came to me. One yeah. of them was that, ek to bureaucratic red taping jo hai na, that is huge. And the reason why he said that is because there is a very low trust ecosystem. Like at this point, the country runs on OTPs, which signals that as far as financials are concerned, even couriers are concerned, we are a low trust sort of polity. Not just that, sir. This is represented very directly in law, say with the Income Tax Act. We were just speaking about it a little while before. 2013 is when the direct tax code was supposed to come, where we were supposed to compress all these overarching, repetitive, notional principles of taxation and make India a safer place to invest in by simplifying, say, taxes. Similarly, what this is true for the contract law situation or the real estate law situation. There seems to be a latent overreach. And if not overreach, there seems to be a latent inattention to these parts. And I think this is a very high leverage area that if you were able to flip the switch on this, no. Suddenly so, I, so the, yes, so this actually goes to something I am uh, I'm quite passionate about, which is that the Indian state needs to do a bunch of things. And the next 20 years of reforms has to be about getting the Indian state to do the things it should do. So one, of course, we discussed infrastructure, infrastructure. Which, I, which I agree, you know, is needs to be done. And of course, we, we have now proved that we are capable of doing it. We need to do a lot more, but we can, we have shown that we can do. Right. The place where I think we really need to get our job going is in the service orientation of the delivery of justice, enforcement of contract, there's a judicial system. Hmm. And the service delivery capacities of our administrative system, the general administrative system, the guys who provide you municipal service, uh, you know, or um, real estate registration office. Those are the interactions that the common citizen has with the state. Right. And that um, uh, interaction, I'm afraid, is still quite unpleasant. Right. Right. Why does this happen? This happens because... The progress we have made so far is not by improving the state's capacities. It has been basically by withdrawing it from things where it was interfering earlier. It is still the same state. And the state is designed for the following purpose. So the Indian bureaucracy was originally set up for the colonial period. The main purpose of the state was to control the population. It was not to provide services. It was just to control the population. That's now, of, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. So that's basically what a colonial power does, right? right? Now we have independence. Now you'd think that it would change. It doesn't. Why? Because we flip from a colonial system to a socialist system, hmm. which is also about controlling the population. You not only control the population, you also control the economy, the gives licenses. So it's also about control. It's not about facilitation. Right. It's not about providing... Dis- so, so one kind of uh, control system is simply evolves into another kind of control system. The socialist system infantilizes its population, thinks it needs the government. Yes, so it's the same thing. Now, instead of 
white man telling you that you know this you should do this it is now wise people sitting in planning commission telling you to do this but it's the same fundamentally the same idea same idea now last 20 years we have tell them no no you shouldn't be telling us please move but that machinery has not been upgraded yes so you cannot blame the av- the 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 individual bureaucrat cannot blame for anything right the problem is the system itself is not set up to provide you services i'll give you one example yes sir okay hmm. where is it that a, the the you know the administrative should be paying it attention okay it's who is who is the guy who the who whom um, the average person uh, depends on so it's the it's the district magistrate right he's still the maibap of the district right uh, the municipal commissioner these are important people for our daily lives but it will surprise many people to realize that they are actually the junior most people in the hierarchy of the bureaucracy so the average district magistrate is only around 33 years old or 35 years old they are in the bureaucracy they are actually at the bottom of the heap or little above the bottom of the heap and they'll be sent to the district he'll somehow survive there for 18 months and then he'll carry on now this is where the rubber is hitting the the, the road right. and here you are sending the junior most guy keeping him there for barely 18 months before he can figure out how the machine even works how do you expect him to provide services whereas when he becomes more senior when he be- when people will finally begin listening to him he is then sitting in the secretariat pushing files around hmm. so if you wanted a service oriented uh, system you should get much more senior people to be actually doing district being a district magistrate or to be in the cutting the the things that actually cut the edge he should be a senior official should be sitting in the property registration office and make sure it works make sure the tehsildar patwari whoever it is works so you have to empower these this system in a way at the point where the delivery of the service happens right. whereas the experienced more senior people are sitting far away in the state capital national capital and so on now i'm not saying the important positions are not there as well yeah i mean obviously the finance secretary defense secretary are important people but a very large part of the service should be here it's a high impact position this is a high impact position that's where they should be and they should be there for long periods of time not 18 months I and mean, the average d- uh, district magistrate is just there for 18 months in a, in that position should be there for fixed 3 years at least if not 4 years mm-hmm. and that should be the time period when that person really understands the system delivers some good you know if you're there for doing something for 4 years you begin to do it right if you're there for 18 months one year even the brightest guy requires one year at least one year cycle to figure out what is what is even happening what is even happening okay then in 6 months he is able to do something and before whatever he is doing he is able to deliver he is shifted so obviously short term things happen what what <clears throat> i don't understand why even colonial or socialist mindset would dictate like 18 months from your logic sounds like a absurdly small amount of time no no because in that time you are actually not interested in doing any big big ticket development work hmm. you are interested in making sure that you know you send a young guy who is who who is uh, risk taking uh, you know he he and the you know whatever the the police chap uh, can control the district during a riot that is your main oh, thing uh, so he is more like an operational guy who who will take risks manage the riot when he has to that kind, that is his role he is not managing uh, you know a highway project over a long period of time or trying to improve the schools over a period of time or whatever else we would now expect him to do right 
that's not his job. He does. He has to make sure riots nahi hote. And then he should be a young, energetic guy. And also, in those days, it was difficult to live in some far-off district. Not today. I mean, everybody, it, most remote parts of the country, cell phones work. Yep. You know, some sort of school is there. You know, their kids can go. In fact, I am a big believer that until the bureaucracy sends their own kids to the government schools, the government schools will never improve. Yes. There is skin in the game in that. There's skin in the game. You have to create skin in the game. He actually lives there. He actually interacts there for long periods of time. Right. So, in fact, even through the system, they may go back to the secretariat. They should come back to the ground again. Right. You said something about revamping the system both in administrative and judicial sort yes. of terms. And I'll come to judiciary in just a second. But even in admin... First of all, sir, what do you mean the system? Because the system is again a bogeyman as far as laymen are concerned. We just blame the system as if the system is a thing. Do you mean laws, bylaws, rules, regulations? Do you mean system as in the operational architecture of that? Both of them. Mm-hmm. So, there's a two sets... And so here, let me say, I uh, there are structural reforms that you need to do. That those are the GST, you know, insolvency and bankruptcy code, whatever. These are big structural reforms. But a lot of the reforms we need to do are actually process reforms. So given a structure, simply the process by which it happens. You know, why on earth do we need to go through fifteen different signatures to get something done? Agreed. There's no need. Right. So a lot of the reforms we need to do is simply. Getting rid of all these things. And by the way, again, this comes from the mindset of control. Why do you need those 15 signatures? Because effectively you have, a, it's, it's all about making sure that you can control something that happens. Right. And nobody in the system can be blamed for whatever happened. Right. That is basically the logic. You are not trying to achieve anything. This you're is to prevent it. Or you're trying to prevent something or right. at least prevent blame if nothing else. Right. So, given that is the focus, you will obviously have a system of these kinds of processes. Mm. You know, everything requires something called an NOC. In fact, till very, very recently, you wanted a passport also, you had to go to a so-called gazetted officer to get a uh, no-objection certificate or some such thing. I mean, why? As a citizen of the country, I have a right to a passport. Yes. Right? Unless I have done something criminal, you're supposed to give it to me. Why do some gazetted officer, who is the gazetted officer, why does he need to uh, certify who I am? And then it obviously creates a whole ecosystem of dalals in agents and middlemen. middlemen, And then system of giving, you know, small favors. You know, so the favor ecosystem ecosystem happens. And again, it goes back all the way to the old system of control. So let me give you an example. There in... Colonial period, there used to be a, a permit called a Kursi Nasheen uh, permit, something like that it was called. Basically, it was a permit to allow an Indian the right to sit in front of a European officer. Okay. Now, it is not difficult to get. It was not difficult to get. Uh-huh. But you see, it was a random new favor that, that was created. So, supposing I was a higher up, I was the... Um, uh, you know, I considered myself to be a Chaudhary Saab. Right. You know, I had a, such a permit and you didn't. Therefore, I'm higher up the hierarchy. Now, what you can see what it has done is created a small favor. Right. Where nothing exists out of thin air, I've created a system of control. I've created if, a currency out of nowhere. Mm, yes. Now, if you behave badly, I will take it away and I'll give it to the other guy. Now, he'll be the Chaudhary Saab. You see, so this is what the gazetted officer thing is the same logic. Right, and much of much of the fascination with UPSC comes from a perpetuation of this thinking. There is a status inflation. Yes, status right? inflation. 
entirely artificially created out of this system of small favors right and this is all about control hmm. what i am trying to say is this is not about service delivery no no this is about so, some prevention some he, version of like social I, control of some sort yes 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 yeah yes. it's hierarchy and social control now this same problem exists in the judiciary which is there for exactly the same reason so you create a judiciary and you know even today you go and say you know my lord why it's a medieval practice european practice yes. why are we doing this we even have bizarre system the entire court shuts down for summer vacations winter vacations you've got to be kidding me hmm. i mean these are colonial even medieval practices pre colonial practices in some cases which have remained uh, in our system hmm. we need a modern courts which are functioning yes the judges need to take holidays they should take holidays like everybody else you put in an application take your two weeks or year or whatever it is in your system and you take your holidays why does the entire court system have to shut down for weeks on end for summer vacations you, you know why so i am just telling you that this whole mindset is the problem there is a mindset problem i agree yes. there is an attitudinal hangover from the colonial socialist times that we carry on and i think you are spot on at least my generation you know we realize very actively that there has to be something that changes about this in fact our view of the government's functioning is decided by let's say the administrative and the judicial touch points that we have right and when we see a clogging up right we see tarikh pe tarikh we see the fact that cases do not get resolved or i have to stand in line for 25 nocs and licenses before i can open a restaurant up no no not just that i mean the, the language of those is also is is strange you know huh. when you go to the court it's a prayer you got to be kidding me a prayer <laughs> <laughs> so this is the language of my house my dad's a lawyer so when i hear that it just automatically I mean, why would you be praying <laughs> I mean who are these great uh, you know god uh, demigods right to who we have to pray so i'm just telling you the whole thing is set up wrong right there's no point in you know blaming a particular bureaucrat or uh, a particular judge right some of those guys actually understand that this is absurd right. in fact they may even have tried in their small way to change things but the architecture is the problem and hence the problem that i'm saying the system is an issue and we have to apply our mind to it right. after all we have unwound another system we had a license permit socialist system yes we unwound it right so it is possible to do yes. and it will not happen in one shot right because there is a whole architecture to it so you'll change one bit of it the rest there will be push back against it after all the vested interest in each one of these things yes so it will evolve over time but over 30 years we did change it right it's not fully but very large proportion this will also change so this is our plan over the next decade I think this is the 25 year old project. It's a 25 year project. This is a 25 year old project. My my generation has started this. Your generation will hopefully end it. Hopefully sir. We but will... but there are, the benefits of this are gigantic. Hmm. Even doing small bits of it will generate enormous growth because the inefficiencies of it are so large. Right. That you know you'll get you'll get you know even 8% growth in some years just by making a little bit better. After all, what happened in the last 25 years? That only we no, no, we थोड़ा थोड़ा कर change होगा तो वो अपने आप चलने लगेगा। अगर pipe clean करेंगे तो पानी भागेगा उसमें से। भागेगा उसमें से। तो पहले झटके में ही पूरा pipe नहीं खाया होगा। And by the way, since we are competing with the rest of the world, let me say they are also human. They are also doing all kinds of things. Like for example, the European Union is going the other direction. Hmm. European Union they are adding regulation. They are adding regulation. 
so i i mean i can foresee a situation in 25 years time where indian businessmen will be mostly complaining about european uh, bureaucracy huh. and uh, indian bureaucrats will be shocked at what uh, what uh, european bureaucrats do right right so this this balance is changing also hmm. and the change in the world that you are seeing is partly happening because of this right so sitting in brussels you have a group of bureaucrats who are completely unaccountable to anyone else they're they're, they're because they're national Uh, parliaments don't properly control them and so they're doing all kinds of things i mean britain of course ultimately got disgusted and left uh, which may have its own problems hmm. but i'm just telling you that other countries also have their own churning of the wheel churning of the wheel and these things go in the other direction and even in india it can also go in the other direction there's nothing god given right. that we will always go in the correct direction so I, one of the purposes of my is of my coming to platforms like this is to tell another generation that please be very careful about this issue you have to watch it carefully and at every point in time there will be a uh, it's a slippery slope but it, there will be some temptation hmm. to go back to the government and say aap isko solve kar do hmm. because the my bab sarkar is a very easy default yes but be very clear that you will pay a very high price for it now once in a while the state does have a role to play but be very clear that it is kept controlled and that when whatever it is to be achieved is done the end and you withdraw the state out of it if you keep adding up you will end up with this more and more government agencies and be clear you as a taxpayer pay for all of it every post retirement job you the taxpayer is paying for and the inefficiencies created are Absolutely. also levied upon us yes there externalities upon the individual more than the system right no that it's an externality eventually on the whole system right right we had picked upon the cultural point of varanasi and you'd mentioned how varanasi has suddenly become a cool place for gen z to go to i have a few thoughts on that yeah my understanding sir is that after the fall of the soviet union and after the fall of the let's say the atheistic communist order that had once come to be people shifted to a more socialistic sort of stance everywhere in the world like you know all the communist countries had sort of softened and we went as far as we could with the idea of the global village we went as far as we could with the idea of liberalism as far as we could with the idea of this world is a brother sister you remember the song we are the world we are the people mm-hmm. that was part of sort of when i look back it sounds like propaganda almost right and then what happened is all countries suddenly around 2014 15 16 and up until now have realized listen this whole free border stuff this whole like complete open your arms to the world stuff is not necessarily how things work and there has been a slight and sudden turning inwards right that only appears in large quantities between generations so when i was 16 what we were growing up on was still the liberal idea sort of now that i'm 28 soon 12 years later what a 16 year old is growing up on is the absolute opposite of it which is let's go and look at my roots let me understand what hinduism's made out of parallelly to this what has sir sort of happened and i credit i don't know if you take the credit but i credit gentlemen like yourself and a few others that have come to meet in this process who've taken the internet which is the dominant form of content consumption in india the youtuber class is now the television class of 10 years ago right they have taken up the charge to sort of 
retake or re-explain or I don't know what the right word would be. Maybe you'd be able to help me with that. Reconstruct the narrative of India from an endemic, from an inside point of view, right? Where we've taken into account our glory and not just our defeats, where we've taken into account our, let's say we've taken a more wholesome view and we've come a, we've come at a more neutral sort of position. Now, this cultural narrative that is now popular has won a geopolitical impact, right? It has a geopolitical origin as well. When we face the world out large, why must we take the American standards on India? Why why must I accept a report from America about human rights when they've been probably the largest violators of human rights in the history, modern history, right? And two, sir, it has downstream cost the 15, 14-year-old to find a home in India far better than ever before, at least in my generation. Right? So I think part of the reason why a 16-year-old likes to go to Varanasi is because he's he's fascinated by his history like never before. The, the idea of the future has seemed bleak in a global sense, in the liberal sense of the word. And so I want to talk about this cultural shift. I want to, talk, I want to understand. My sentiment's always been that culture without the help of economics does not really go far. It becomes an internal battle, much like what Iran did with itself. It tried to own its culture. There was no economic sort of, you know, and then it became a country fighting its own wars and whatever. What is this cultural shift, sir? How does this represent itself in geopolitics? Why is it important for us to have our own narrative? What is your view on that? Sorry if the question was too long. <laughs> no worries. I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying because, I mean, uh, in some ways, I also went through that process uh, a couple of decades before you. See, the point is that um, we started out as an India that was very fearful of the rest of the world, maybe because we had been colonized or whatever. And so, you know, import substitution, close ourselves to the world um, and, you know, be very moralistic towards the rest of the world rather than participating with the rest of the world. That was our view. Then we opened it up. We opened it up, it certainly benefited us globalizing. But then we globalized into a world where essentially other people set the rules. And um, one part of that problem is that they, they, there was a global, there is a global elite, the you know Soros, George Soros's of the world, who said, "Oh yes, you can participate, but we will set the rules for you, and we will tell you what you should think about yourself." Now that too doesn't work. So as Indians, we want to participate in the world. We are accepting, you know, Vasudeva Kutumbakam. So yes, the world is a family. We are a part of the world. This is not the old import substitution universe of being fearful of the world. Hmm. But we want to participate in the world in our own terms. And why shouldn't we? We are 1.4 billion people. One we third. One sixth, one, of, the one sixth of the, the world, world population. Yes. Uh, we'll be the world's third largest economy in no time at all. Uh, we have one of the world's largest diasporas. Our diaspora is both proud and, and successful in, in, in all across the world. There is no reason why we should be defensive about our civilization and our roots. Right. So we want to participate in the world, but in our own terms. Therefore, we will be rooted in who we are. We don't not going to pretend to be somebody else. Right. Now, this showing through at multiple levels, even, even in the West, say, a Rishi Sunak, uh, doesn't hide the fact that he is celebrating practicing Hindu, practicing Hindu. Right. or you have Vivek in the, uh, United, in States. the United States. So this is a very big change. Right. Right. Two decades ago, these same people would have changed their name, name from Vivek to Viv or something like that mm -hmm. and tried to fit in. Right. We don't do that anymore. I said, yeah, we'll participate, but we will do it with, in our own terms. And while this is happening with our diaspora, this is also happening here. This is not to suggest that we want to invade the rest of the world and obliterate it or dominate it. No, but we will participate and we will tell our own story. Hmm. Now, 
as we begin to do this, also remember that the rest of the world, especially this so-called liberal, self-declared liberal elite, I mean, one can debate whether they're actually liberal, I would argue not. <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is the self-certified liberal elite finds this threatening. Because here is a country who, and here are a bunch of people who are clearly succeeding, who we don't quite control. And so they will try in very various ways, try and manipulate this narrative. And one of the ways, which I have written about extensively, is this use of global indices of various kinds. So you will global hunger index, bottom of the list. Global obesity index, top of the list. Are you hungry and obese? Think through which one you want to right. we are. Huh. Ah, then you will say, uh, world, in fact, there is something called the World Democracy Index. So, democracy index, mein we are some 98 out you know, in the list. Mm. World's largest democracy is 98 in the list. So, who is the number uh, top guys? The top guys are Kingdom of Norway, Kingdom of Denmark, Kingdom of Sweden. You know, the main finding is effectively that to be a good democracy or to be a kingdom. Mm. So, this is, the, this is the sheer absurdity of all of this. I mean, right. there is a global academic freedom index. In 2022, we were b- far below Afghanistan. Now, at least, you know, be reasonable. Be reasonable. Be reasonable. If you, even if you're lying, at least try and <laughs> hide it. it. Hide it. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, cannot be this absurd. Right. So, the, my point is, this is something we should expect. If you are going to engage in the world, the rest of the world, who is losing their position, position in, the world, in, right. the, in the system. And by the way, many of these people are being also questioned in their own countries. So, there is a new thing called... Environment, social and governance norms, ESG norms. Yeah, you yeah. may have heard. It's now getting imposed on everything. Now, there is no globally agreed parameters. Okay, some random NGOs came up and created some parameters and they are going around certifying everybody. Now, if you dig a little bit, you will discover that the three, same three funders who have created all these NGOs and these parameters, USAID, Soros and... Um, uh, one more, uh, 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 I think it's Omedyar or something. There are three, four like this. Um, and essentially what they are doing, is a form of neo-colonialism, but they are basically using layer upon layer of institutions or trying to tell you, we will tell you that you are good or not. We will give you a certificate. If you are right, we will give you another certificate, another lollipop. Hmm. And they find it a little awkward because India doesn't play by these rules. Right. Huh. हाँ हम रशिया से ऑयल इंपोर्ट करेंगे क्या कर लोगे हाँ राइट क्या कर लोगे हाँ पिस देम ऑफ सो मच सो नो सो नाउ द पॉइंट ऑफ द मैटर इज तो दिस इज एन एनवायरनमेंट वेयर वी हैव टू कीप आर आईज ओपन एंड रियलाइज दैट वी आर बीइंग देर इज अ ह्यूज एफर्ट टू ट्राइ एंड मैनिपुलेटर्स राइट एंड the rest of the world system actually find these these tiny cabal controls and finds its way into our system is uh, essentially not by having very large numbers. Many of these things are not, not, not about very large numbers. They're just small number of think tanks they have abroad. They have their friends in Indian academia, NGOs here. Many of them are Lodi Road. <laughs> in and around India Habitat Center, India uh, International Center, Rusi is own mayor's gate and many of them have a finger in the system because they are children of our own elite. Right. 
you know, bureaucrats, judges, etc., their own daughters and sons are work in these and they get dollarized salaries. Right. winter mein chutti pe aate America se mm-hmm. aur India Habitat Center mein hum logon ko PowerPoint presentation mein samjhate how to improve India. So mm. this is how we are being manipulated. So we have to create an indigenous narrative as well. Mm. And we have to be willing to go out there and not only interpret ourselves to them, we are now reaching a point where we should be willing to interpret them as well. Mm. I.e. turn the gaze. Mm. Right, 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 right. That is a power move. That's a power move. Right. And so let me give you a concrete example of this. Yes, sir. You'll regularly see some some election happens, some political event or something happens in India, economic, political event. Then you will read our top newspapers, Times of India, which by the way is the world's largest English language newspaper. Okay. Right. Right. Times of India, however, in its main edit page, will have an editorial by some random Western um, academic, uh, maybe some associate professor at some random university, and he will get to write about why elections in Karnataka went somewhere or Madhya Pradesh went somewhere. Now, how does he know? Right. 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 Now, this now the equivalent of this would be if some uh, um, you know associate professor of one of our universities was writing in New York Times about Illinois may coach election hua ya you know New York State may coach election hua. He is now no one in New York Times is never going to give space to an Indian based in India, no matter how good he is, mm. space in their edit page on dissecting American politics. Right. They just would get laughed out. Right? They just won't. Right. But we are happy to do it the other way around. Right. In fact, we routinely do it. Why? Because of this problem that we have, we still have a hangover of We sort. have a hangover of some sort. Right, 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 right. Now, I'm not saying that occasionally it's okay. Right, right. But we do it routinely. You yes. just look at any new, I mean, Times of India, Hindustan Times, um, Economic Times, Hindu, all of these top line Indian magazines. Or you look at the guests in our television channels. Random uh, from Brown University, uh, Columbia University, some random associate professor will come, may even have an Indian name, it doesn't matter. Mm. Why should we give space to them? Right. After all, will the flip side work? Mm. Same thing, for example, when, for example, very senior official from India uh, goes abroad. Right. Right. Now, you go and look at when they talk on some stage somewhere. You see who their equivalent they are talking to. They are not talking to their own equal. They are usually talking to somebody who is many layers below them right. in the ecosystem. So, uh, uh, of that place. Right. 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 So, minister from India will be quite happy to go to uh, the UK and go to Chatham House. And be at the same stage as a uh, top so, level maybe, journalist, right. but right. a journalist. Mm. Would the equivalent happen the other way around? No. no. Right. So there is a, you know what I think, sir? I think, you know, what we don't understand is there is a soft power element to this entire thing. I was of a very stern opinion that this global elite cabal, this, this language was conspiratorial until very recently. Once I, and I mean, I think my stint in America has something to do with it because sometimes the narratives that get peddled in that country, speaking from an Indian perspective, I'm like, what are you even talking about? Like only today I was looking at this, um, the, the presidents of, I think, 
Harvard and Princeton or one of these universities. Yeah, sitting, MIT, Harvard and um, MIT, Harvard and, and Penn. Penn, yes. Sitting in front of uh, the congresswoman, unable to admit something so basic, right? That, And it it is at that point I started realizing that there seems to be some some coordinated effort to keep the narrative polarized in a certain direction. Uh, up until then, I thought of it as conspiratorial. And so every time the word Soros got men- mentioned, and I've only briefly heard the word Omidyar, right? I don't mm-hmm. know what that means or if it's a person or so on and so forth. But it does seem to be that there is some soft power control on global narrative that has exerted itself for a larger period of time. My conspiratorial bet is that it begins with Al Gore back in, you know, the early 2000s with the climate so- sort of situation. But even Elon Musk recently saying, I don't want to play with the advertisers who are going to blackmail me behind No, no, I, you just see that the sheer absurdity of this ESG system that I mentioned. Right. The highest rated ESG companies are all tobacco companies. You've got to be kidding me. So much sustainability. So oh much sustainability. God. You can sustainably grow tobacco all the time. <laughs> and so this complete absurdity is there. Right. So this is happening all the time. And what you're seeing in US universities is... Of course, one of the problems is they the, the Western mind, as a result, is closing itself. There's a price they will pay for it because liberal education is not education for self-certified liberals. Mm. Liberal education is an open thing of mind. Right. But they have clearly closed their mind. Right. And it's their problem, right. very frankly. And I, I have a hunch that something similar must have happened in Indian universities in the 12th century, which is why, you know, ragtag armies from the Central Asia were able to walk through India and burn down Nalanda, for example. Right. Um, you know, Harvard and MIT will discover this right. one day. Right. Um, but meanwhile, the point of the matter is there is obviously a certain kind of manipulation. And I'll give you one example of it. There is now this whole thing of this uh, Khalistani gentleman called Pannu. Right. Oh my God. Achha, mera kutta kutta, tumhara kutta Pannu. Haan. Right, right, right. Hame soch ke dekho. But the point is he will come and bite you also. After all, if it was okay to go after terrorists in Pakistan because he happened to be linked to uh, bombs or whatever. After all, Osama bin Laden didn't personally fly into those buildings. No. He was provided whatever was the back, background to doing it. Now, if there are similar people pro, uh, uh, providing the background to doing <coughs> terrorist acts by Khalistanis or others as well in India, why should Indians not have the same attitude towards them? I mean, never mind whether or not India did or didn't get participate in the, uh, you know, in trying to assess or whatever, or whatever is, it is. Yeah, that, right. that let their courts figure it out. I yes, don't know. Right. But the fact of the matter is, this that is not even the issue. Yes, the issue is what he says, and and yes, and it is there, and he's openly saying, and let's let's take that same conversation and put it in this MIT pen thing. So let uh, me explain the MIT huh. conversation for people who have no context. Huh. So basically, the Congress of the United States summoned the president of Harvard, Harvard, uh, MIT, and Penn, and asked them, "Does the call genocide for Jews?" constitute harassment on the bullying code of conduct that you have in your universities. And neither, none of those three presidents could abjectly say yes or no. They tried to play the legal language of, well, if it translates into action, the congresswoman asks, so do you mean if they actually commit genocide, only then will you constitute as bullying? And all three of them have led us to believe that, 
whatever these universities once stood for is like a snake eating its own tail right it's it's not going to protect its jewish students and what you were trying to say is that that might be true for hindu students given we have guys like pannu running about amok on youtube saying i will kill hindus and they are protecting him and so protecting why him. does this exact same logic not not apply to them so for example do they need pannu to have actually carried out that actual act of terrorism Before in for him to be uh, somebody that we should uh, you know sh- sh- should be supporting yes absolutely not i mean if that applies for uh, um, these universities surely it also applies for uh, pannu right and i mean the first amendment clearly guarantees waha pe na that if you if you state an act of violence if you call and incite an act of violence it is not free speech After that all, is a clear line screaming fire in a packed uh, theater is not freedom of speech no. you will be punished for it right so therefore something that clearly and actively can lead to some damage hmm. uh, violence or other kind and you are consciously doing it that is not free speech at all that is not covered by free speech in any country including in the us right so the that is the point was that the congressman right. woman was making and if this is true in their own congressional hearings i'm sure they should surely apply to hindus why only to the jews and sir this is what i mean this is probably why we need a indigenous narrative because if we did not have one we would think of pannu as not a obvious terrorist in the making if no but the more interesting thing in this is not that you see there are many people doing this right pannu in some ways is a very minor player, player. right so the question is how did he get become so big hmm. how does he end up in time magazine <laughs> what <laughs> how does he turn up i mean these are, he, how has he become a actually a person, person that you know prime ministers and presidents know about right because obviously he has been built up by a certain ecosystem right he doesn't have a large organization no and he certainly does not have a large organization in india right even in north america he doesn't have right so the fact that he has been built up the fact that there is a whole machinery willing to protect him willing to take on a uh, 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 you know geostrategic ally like india tells you something about the complex nature and the size of resources available to this machinery that is trying to mm, uh, manipulate india and other things that we just discussed i have one last question sir yes. i think i have probably taken enough of your time uh, i have taken an hour i have one last question this is a very audience favorite question i would generally not find myself being very proud of asking it but i will still yeah N- given that this is probably the first time in a long while that two superpowers are emerging in a very close contact area between china and india where one can say from looking into the future and touch wood god bless that this is going to happen india and china are both going to be supremely strong economically ir- irregardless of small sort of say for instance what china is having right now and so on how will we compete with china because china is not an ally as we stand right now china is well they're silent but they're they can do whatever they want they're very strategic in this way how does india compete with china economically politically defense wise over the next 10 15 20 years what how do you think about it if not the government so look we can't wish china away right um it is a competitor geopolitically economically and so on but it's we also collaborated on, on with it in multiple ways we trade with it mm-hmm. we we many of the components of stuff we produce here come from there um and so on and at some point in time it may also become an export market of ours although it isn't today so 
point of the matter is that we can't wish china away so we have to deal with it some way but we have to deal with it with our eyes open it is potentially and in certain areas it already is a hostile power as well it does fund uh, pakistan which in turn uh, carries out all kinds of terrorist and other activities in india um it has in other ways you know we have direct uh, border skirmishes right, with them right. uh, so it is not the case that we can look on them as a benign power but at the same time we cannot wish it away so we have to manage it manage that relationship it has to be done actively with our eyes open not the way we used to do it say in 1962 right. uh, but we have to actively do this mm. and along the way we will have to have allies who have similar problems with them um you know the japanese have similar problems with them um, the australians have similar problems with them the us has similar problems with them so we have created al- alliances like the quad for example right um which are not just about china this is about other so- things but yes china is certainly a important part of that equation um we have in certain places kept ourselves out for example there was the straight deal called arcep hmm. and we didn't go into it uh, we instead kept out and many people criticized uh, uh, us for that but we took a call that look there's a price we will pay but we will keep ourselves independent of, of this because it's largely a china driven uh, trade pact um we have for example there are many apps which we have completely banned completely banned and we were right about it absolutely we were right about it yes and the americans are finding out why we did it yeah and so yeah so there so there are things where we uh, take actions of various kinds where we feel that there may be a case for pushing back or banning or taking some sort of an exceptional approach um but at the same time the fact remains that china is there there are many areas where we will have no choice but to collaborate with them trade with them invest with them etc and frankly that's the way the world is right and is always going to be it's not some special situation no that's why life is and world history and politics and economics are difficult things i mean throughout history um you know great empires and powers have had to deal with this right uh, sometimes it has uh, led to uh, wars and conflict and other times they have managed to um, self sustain self sustain coexistence in some way uh, and so on so history is a long thing which happens will you know, pan out over decades and centuries so our game right now is to be able to maximize the things for our own purposes our population of today and the next few generations make sure their quality of life improves our economic power improves we do this without damaging our environment too much will be some sacrifice at the margin but try and maintain it and try and get back as much possible on the other side of this growth spurt mm. um, you know and maintain our cultural environmental and other integrity of this country hmm. okay sir thank you so much i have one last request yes in the new year sir yes. i'm going to try and reach out to your office i would love to have a conversation about kotilya okay because i've heard so much about you being a kotilian i've heard you talk about him and his ideas and i've been fascinated i think as far as historical figures in india go especially political especially in the modern modern context it's a it could provide a very interesting ancient timeless voice for people to think about how we should think about all uh, you know for instance governance bureaucracy economics and so on if that is ever okay sir there's no pressure at all happy to have you back thank you so much this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation thank you yes